This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are here with you to talk about film. Uh, Danielle, what's up? Uh, not much. Chill week. How, how's everything going with you? Uh, it's actually okay. I uh, Did I tell you that I have been taking an art class? You did. And I've been seeing some of the art you've been posting. And you are an incredible artist. What the fuck? How can you bury this lead for so long? Um, I thank you for saying that. I do not feel like that's true. But I, re- I really wanted to take classes at this place here in Atlanta that um, is you know, kind of like an arts center. And I, it's beautiful. It Like, I went to a wedding there like 20 years Ooh. ago for my old roommates. And it's just like, it, it's kind of this weird like Tudor property and it has a lot of gardens and stuff. And I was like, this place is so magical. What do they do at this place? And they're like, oh, they, t- they teach, uh, you know, art and, you know, pottery and, nice. you know, leatherworking and that kind of shit, basket weaving. And they just do a lot of different, you know, types of art. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a drawing class because, I don't know, just interested in, in drawing. And um, it's me and seven other people who are all retired. They're my parents' age or older. You are also retired right now, so it's Yes. <laughs> oh, and it is like a glimpse into the wonderful retired life. Like, I'm like, I'm ready for this now. Exactly. (laughs) And maybe have been for a long time because this shit is so fun. It is so fun to go to this class. Oh, how many, like, is it once a week, couple times a week? Yeah, once a week in the morning. Oh, I love a morning art class. Great way to start a day. Uh, Unbelievable. So, yeah, it's a couple hours, one day a week. And, you know, it's taught by, um, you know, this art professor, and uh, he's awesome. Like, he's kind of this, like, he reminds me of a guy that I probably would have hung out with in college or something. He's, like, he was probably in a band. You know what I mean? Like, you know how you get that vibe from certain people? You're like, yeah, you were in a band. Because you wear, like, double denim and you have, like, wrist tattoos. Exactly. (laughs) Even though you might be, like, you know, an accountant now or something. But, you know, you 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 either play in a band on the weekends or you were in a band in the 90s, right? Oh, God. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and it's so fun. I mean, listen, you know I love gear. Gear is literally, like, if I could just buy gear for gear things. Gear is life. Do, I, do you have a carrying case? I imagine you have a carrying case for those pencils. Let me just guess what your yes. whole setup is. I okay. bet you have an easel. I bet you have a few notebooks, a varying oh, yeah. paperweight. You know, you've got a watercolor, you've got a, a, a sketch, you've got a draft, you have different pencils, 
um, uh-huh. colored and plain, like the graphite ones, and the but also like the 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 blue ones with the black tip. Those art pencils. You bet. I bet you have um, an intense amount of erasers of varying degrees. Ah, you called me out on that shit. <laughs> I have so many different types of erasers. It's kind of like, it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. I love it. I love it. And then you go to class with like a suitcase full of gear. I guarantee. Yes. Uh, look, you read me to filth. What did I expect? What did I expect? No, I'm obsessed. Like, I've been to every art art supply store in Atlanta. Nice. And I'm just browsing the aisles. And I'm like, I'm an artist now. So, you know, I just want to look, <laughs> take a look and see what they got here. Oh, like, they have all these uh, B pencils versus the H pencils. And, you know, like, all this stuff. Like, I know what I'm talking about. I just found out about all of this stuff, like, three weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> but it's so fun. And I have, you're correct, I have a little art bin that I keep my erasers and my charcoal and my pencils yep. and my ruler. And I have a your little, little... Your little art caboodle with your cray paws. Oh, yes. And I've got my my sketch my sketch pad, my drawing pad. I actually have two, one for mm-hmm. home and one for away. This is incredible. I love this so much. Yeah. I love this so much. And I think that it's... Again, you are an incredible artist. Like, I was shocked when you were like, oh, I'm taking this art class. And I'm like, oh, to, like, show off? Because you're a really good artist. Well, it's like the first, okay, the first class, you know, you basically get used to all of the, you know, your gear. He's like, an introduction to your gear. Um, They're called art materials or supplies, (laughs) but I call it gear, you know? But it's basically like he, he... he sat down and was like, here's what all the pencils are. Here's what these types of erasers do. It was great. Then he was like, do your first project. He handed out, like, you know, pictures of things yeah. to draw. And you were just supposed to copy what we saw. And so, because when it comes to drawing, like, I have always been one of these people that, like, can't figure out, like, the size of things. You like, know what I mean? Like, dimensionally placing, Yeah. Yeah, so, like, whenever I draw people's faces, I, you know, I can't get the eyes and nose in the right place. I'm like, these eyes are too big, and this nose is too small. What is wrong with me? Like, I can't, dimensionally, can't figure it out, and I don't I don't know why. But um, it's funny, because I was actually proud of myself. I was like, oh, that looks like a pair of scissors. That's pretty yes. cool. You know? You should be. And then you drew a face, and it looked great. Yes, and the coolest thing about that project in particular was that he made, so the teacher made us bring in a, you know, he's like, go through a magazine and pick out like a a picture of somebody and bring it into class. And so we did that. And, you know, I went through like, I had these like old issues of like Fantastic Man and I was like, oh, cool, there's like a picture of Pedro Maldivar that seems really cool. I'll just draw that. So I ripped it out. And then we come to class and I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to draw a face. I'm nervous. And then he was like, Okay, so now we're going to turn all these pictures upside down and you're going to have to draw it upside down. And I was like, what? And for some fucking reason, like, I got everything proportionally correct. Like, I was like, oh. When I turned it right side up, I was like, oh, shit. Like, it seemed harder to draw upside down, obviously. But I wonder, like, if it's because when you're looking at, especially a face upside down, you can break it down into shapes more more readily. Yeah. So it's more about less less about the pressure of getting the details correct and more about getting the placement and the you know, that that makes sense to me that you're kind of yeah, like yeah. oh like I've taken it out of context so it makes a little more sense to me in a different way. 
Oh, yeah. I, I totally, like, stopped the, the teacher when he was walking around. I'm like, all right, what's the science behind this? you got to tell me. How can I draw a face upside down but not right side up? And he was just like... Give me, give me the oral history of this face drawing. <laughs> I know. I was like, but it's exactly what you said. I mean, he basically said what you said. So, I don't know. I love it. I love waking up, uh, getting a coffee, going to my art class in the garden and the fucking beautiful Tudor mansion and... I swear to you, like, if once I retire, it's going to be on. Like, I'm taking yes. all kinds of shit. You have no idea. I feel like you're going to be the kind of retired person who takes trips to do art classes. You're going to be like, yes. oh, I'm in Switzerland <laughs> next week drawing the Alps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be a real fucking obnoxious patron of the arts. Also, I found out something. You know, like, when you see TV or movies of people holding up a paintbrush like this in their th with a thumb? Yeah. Uh, I find out why people do that. And I <laughs> didn't... I thought people were just doing it to be fancy. And he's just like, looking no, at their thumbs. <laughs> they're, me they're measuring the distance of something. And I'm like, oh, God. oh that's not just some <laughs> bullshit, like, funny art person thing that happens in TV and movies. He's like, no. I'm not just checking to see if they need a manicure. That's <laughs> like, wow, I'm learning so much about art. This is incredible. I fucking love it. I love that you're doing this class. I love that you have like something Thank that you. you enjoy that's different to get you out of your head to look forward to every week. It's very, very important. And this is the kind of thing we couldn't do two years ago. I know. So I'm thrilled. I love it. And I just want I want you to send me you pick, but send me some of your art so I can frame it and hang it up like a proud, like a proud papa. <laughs> uh, that is a lot of pressure, but I I will I will figure out at the end of the class which is my best work and then I'll I'll It could be your worst work. I just want to I just I just want to support you. I really love this. Aww. I truly love this. Thank you. Thank you. Here's the thing. I have finally come up with a list for you to oh, do a shit. round of serial killer or self-care. Fucking yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, I, I was like, okay, challenge accepted. It was harder than I thought, by the way. I don't know how you're able to do it all so easily. I was like, wow, this is like, this is a real brain teaser for me. It's sometimes but, it's, a, it's a little bit of reverse engineering because I think everyone yeah. is capable of being a serial killer. So I just reverse engineer from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? What? Everything is serial killer. That's the thing is that I was like, <laughs> is everything for serial killers? No, but I, I have come up with a small list and I'm hoping uh, that you'd want to play the game in reverse. Of, of course. Of course. Okay. okay. This is so, my dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. If you're not aware of this game, we've played it a few times on the podcast. So basically, Danielle comes to the pod with a list of things, and you have to decide whether or not it is serial killer or self-care, right? And you're inhabiting the brain of the other person. So, exactly. you know, it, traditionally, it's like I have to get into Danielle's brain and, and figure out what she would answer like. But then now we're doing it in reverse. So you're going to have to jump into my body, Tom Hanks in big style, 
I knew you had 55 erasers before you even said anything. I'm ready for this. <laughs> Let's see. I'm sure this is going to be so easy. I'm sure it's going to be so easy. So, Also, do you like how we, whenever we come up with a game on this show, it is the most complicated version. We're like, is it good or was I horny? And everyone's <laughs> like, how do we answer that? We're like, serial killer or self-care? But get into the other person's body. Like, we're just never like, here's a question. Yes, it's never <laughs> easy with us. It's never easy with us. But you know what? I fucking love I love I us. Love I love it. our weird ways of thinking. So Same. Same. Okay. So, first question. There's five in total. So, first okay. question. Serial killer or self-care? Sleeping with only one pillow. For you, serial killer. Yes. Correct. <laughs> Only because I have slept at your house in your guest room. And there were like five pillows on that bed. Okay. <laughs> like, Look. Oh, if this is how she treats guests, she's got enough pillows on her own bed to reach like halfway down the mattress. What what does it say about me that I the idea of sleeping with one pillow is scary. Like, if Absolutely. you look at a bed that has one pillow on it, you're like, a serial killer sleeps there. One hundred percent. And don't get me started on, like, it's good for my bag, it's good for... No, because that's also serial killer, where you're like, I have to sleep on the floor and like or, like, a hard mattress because it helps with my... I'm sorry. I can't. Sleeping should be for comfort and <laughs> recharging your body. And if you have one pillow, I don't see how that's happening. Yeah. I mean, listen, I when it comes, there's like two separate things, the functions of pillows. There's like the decor part and then the, the pillows that you actually sleep with. Okay. So decor wise, I'm all I'm like half the bed is pillows. I'm like, you got to get the euros in there. You got to get the body pillow, the standards, the little decorative, fuzzy, furry pillow. And, oh you know, it, it's you're just cry, trying to create an ambiance, okay? But exactly. then, here's the thing. Some of those pillows come off, and then some of them stay. I'm never just whittling it down to one pillow to sleep on. I mean, right. when it comes down to it, I'm bare minimum, bare minimum two, but really ideal four. Absolutely. I have six pillows on my bed. And they are all different. There are three different kinds of pillow. I have two each of three different kinds of pillow. Uh -huh. I have bamboo pillows, mm -hmm. which are like a little bit firm, but they're kind of just soft enough. Yeah. I have your typical like Target, go get them. They'll be collapsed in two minutes, soft pillows. Yes. And then I have an in-between because yeah. I love to sit in bed and write or read. Yes. So yes. there's a lot of propping up that needs to happen. Yes. And then when I go to sleep, none of the pillows come off. They just move around. Yeah. So I might put one behind my back. I might put one between the knees to help with the Boom. hip alignment. Boom. They never leave the bed. I use yeah. them all depending on how I feel. Yeah. I got one of those square pillows that's supposed to be good for side sleepers that you put in the side of your neck. Yeah. But that's what I use my little Target pillows for that you could just smush them up and roll them in there. Absolutely. Yeah. My my standard operating procedure is two over under the head, and then one on each side. Yeah. Because I, I like, it feels like I'm armchaired in the bed. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, I've got bumpers. I got my little bumpers. Because I also have oh, the God. dog. Yes. The dog sleeps, like, around the leg area. So I'm like, yep. I feel like I need bumpers. 
And absolutely. Same with carrot. Carrot likes to sleep directly between my knees. Yeah. So if I'm on my back, he's like right there. Like I can't move. I can't. So I have to be comfortable up top because I can't move the bottom half of my body once he decides to go to sleep. Yeah. So if you sleep with one pillow, I don't know Uh -uh. about you. I'm just saying you might be a murderer. All right. So you got that one right. We're off to a good start. Okay. Now here's the second one. (laughs) All right. So serial killer or self-care. Flavored coffee. And I'm not talking about adding flavors to coffee. I'm talking about when the coffee itself is flavored when you like brew the bean. It. Yes. For you, serial killer. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I have had so much coffee with you, bitch. You think I didn't know that? <laughs> you have never once ordered a hazelnut coffee. Uh uh-uh. uh. Never. And me I'm either. Like, Yo, adding, like, hazelnut and maple and vanilla to a bean is fucked up. Who thought of that? The bean wasn't enough? Yeah. Dunkin' Donuts, I guess, is who thought of it. I don't know who thought of it. Folgers? Some weird, like, Cafe International? What are those, like, (laughs) old school? It's so, like, I'm not saying, like, if you brew your coffee and then you add a little, like, you know, hazelnut... Uh, flavoring, you know, like those pumps of things, fine. But if it's added before you grind the bean or whatever, or as you're brewing it, I'm like, that's gross, dude. And let me tell you, I've worked in so many fucking coffee shops, and when you, you have to have a separate grinder for the flavored bean. So, but it's only one grinder. So if you, someone before you orders hazelnut, and then you order like butter pecan, it's all mixed in there. (laughs) No. <laughs> like you're getting all kinds of flavors and it smells like hell. Yeah. I don't like the smell of it. I really don't. It also paves the way for flavored creamers, which I also think is a serial killer move. A hundred percent. You could take your fucking international delights and get them right out of this house. No, no. I mean, I I have to say there was a small period of time when I used to fuck with that like French vanilla coffee mate type of stuff because I was like, why not? No. Now I think about I think about those days and I'm like disgusted with myself. I'm like, how did I drink vanilla creamer? Ugh. I think flavored coffee and flavor flavored beans and flavored creamers are training wheels for drinking a real cup of coffee. Yes. A hundred percent. It means that you hate coffee, I think, when you are in that zone. You're like, I don't like the taste of coffee. It's gotta taste like a milkshake. And I'm like, no, I'm at the point in my life where I think the taste of coffee is delicious. Yes. So that's kind of maybe that's the line in the sand. So if you like the the taste of coffee and you don't need any additives, self-care. If you have to have maple coffee, use a serial killer. Okay. You might have killed. You might have killed. I also think we should start calling this game Alienation because I guarantee (laughs) 55% of our audience at the end of every round is like, they're absolutely calling me a serial killer. Oh, yeah. There's like furious fingers typing mean emails to us right now. Like, how dare you? How dare you say that in 2023? You might not have killed, but if you're drinking International Delights, you it's in you. (laughs) It's in you. It's like a little seed waiting to be watered. (laughs) Okay, so here's the next one. So you've gotten two right so far. I'm very proud of you. Thank you, thank you. This next one, 
I don't know. It, it's going to feel easy, maybe, maybe not. So, serial killer of self-care, farting in a yoga class. All right, I'm inhabiting your brain. This is harder than I thought. Mm. My mm. instinct is serial killer, but for you, I think you're going to say self-care because when you got to go, you got to go. You're absolutely correct. Yeah! Self-care. Look, we're not holding it in. We're not holding it in. (laughs) No, not in this economy. Not in this economy. I mean, first of all, like, I feel like, and then maybe this is just me, but like, (laughs) you know, when you're in a yoga class, you know, you're loosening up the guts, you're loosening up all the hinges and the joints and all of the Mm -hmm. little pockets of air, okay? So like, farts are going to happen, okay? I'm not saying, you know, not to laugh, but I'm just saying they happen and you shouldn't get yeah. all grossed out and go have fucking maple flavored coffee with your friends after class and be like, can you believe that lady farted in our yoga class? I'm like, no, it is absolutely something that you should fucking do if you have to. And don't Completely. be embarrassed by it. I could not agree more. And I think if you can't handle huffing someone's farts, wear a mask. <laughs> yes. In class, because it's designed to help you release most yoga classes will help you release and your body will let you know what kind of release you need. And sometimes that releases a fart. Sometimes it's a tight muscle. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, you, don't go in there and like plan on blowing yourself around like a fucking jalopy. Like don't plan to be like, I'm holding in my farts until I get to yoga class. But if they happen, they happen. Yeah. I mean, holding in farts, I'm I'm sorry. Like I'm no. I'm getting to the point where I'm like, Maybe you can do that shit when you're a kid and everything's fine. But after a certain point in time, if you're holding in farts, that's Mm-mm. wrecking you. Like, your your guts are broken if you're holding in farts. Like, you know, I'm not saying you should be farting anywhere and everywhere. But I'm just saying, generally, if you're the type of person that's like, I can't stand farting. I can't do it. You know, like, get, get real. You gotta fart. I am it's proud to be... The number one crop duster in the tri-state area. (laughs) I'll fucking own it. I am not holding it in. And again, this is one of the last bastions. We talked about this once. I think it was in a bonus episode about movie theaters and sitting in public and kind of being with people. I think one of the last bastions of you being forced to interact with society is occasionally you're going to smell a fart. And you don't know when it could happen. And that's the risk you take when you leave your fucking house. Exactly. And we all do it and it's fine. Yeah. Like I said, you know, be a little curatorial about it, obviously. Like, you know, you don't want to, like, be in a situation where you're, like, in a tight fucking elevator going up, like, 40 floors and farting. Like, but I'm just saying, if you're you're alone in an aisle in a grocery store and you have to let one rip, fucking do it. Like, if you're in a movie theater by yourself and you have to fart, let it go, you know? And I'm talking about, like, the high-pitched squeal fart. I don't care if there's sound attached to it. I don't care. <laughs> Let out a high pitched squeal. Let out a little like you know those like those, this is like again dream come true for me to talk about farts. You know those ones that just come out like one toot where it's like a big one. Where it's like and you're like whoa! Yeah. I didn't know I had that in me. Like be the baritone horn. Turn your ass into a baritone horn. Just let it go. 
You know, Casey needs to drop in a fart noise right now. And let me just tell you, Annalise used to do that for us before you came around. So, honestly, I'm so glad you're on the same page about farting. Yes. You know, let, it rip. let her rip. Let it rip. I feel like, again, if you go to a yoga class, especially a hot yoga class, anything goes. And my farting is the least of your concerns in a hot yoga class. I mean, Absolutely. you gotta, you know. Yeah, people it, passing out. Yeah, people puking. You better watch out for puke. It's like an ayahuasca festival in a hot yoga class. Yes. Farting is the least of your concerns on one of those. So anyway, I'm you got uh, that correct. So you are yes. three for three so far. This is actually this. incredible. I'm okay, it. so here's the fourth one. Serial killer of self-care. Try not to laugh. You could you can always opt to turn the camera off. <laughs> a la my last question in our last round about the the rabbit vibrator. <laughs> yes. So uh serial killer self-care. Working out in jeans. Fucking serial killer, 100%. No hesitation. <laughs> Obviously, 100% right. <laughs> and I know this for several reasons, but because I also know that you love to watch those extreme workout videos. <laughs> Where people are like, they have like a chain with a piece of exercise equipment around their neck while they're lifting. And those people are 90% wearing jeans. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I think this is a weird look. Because I'm like, now I think they make workout jeans, so whatever. But I'm like, anytime I see a guy, it's always a guy. I've never seen a woman working out in <laughs> jeans, by the way. No, sorry we, to we have, sorry to uh, stereotype, but it's true. I've only no. seen men working out in jeans. We we have too much to be aware. We're wary of the yeast situation. I'll just say that. Yes, yes, but it's also like part of me is going. Were you just so fucking pumped to work out that you couldn't change? Like you're like, I have to go work out right fucking now, and I'm not putting on shorts. I'm going in my jeans. Like that to me is. Weird and serial killer, <laughs> right? Yeah, like you. Most people plan their gym routine, so when you see someone in jeans, you're like, "Oh, what is going on?" With exactly that. What is going on with you that you had to work out right the fuck now? It's so weird. It's such a weird look. Also, jeans are not good for working out. Like I, I'll just tell you right now, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life was when I went on a hike in Big Sur, okay? And I went to my favorite hike in Big Sur. It's like at Andrew Malera State Park. It's the Creamery Meadow Hike, okay? It's wonderful, beautiful. It empties out into a fucking desolate beach. It's amazing. The beginning of the hike, though, requires you to possibly cross a river, okay? And depending on the time of year that you go, sometimes there's no water, and there's a little piece of wood that you walk over. Sometimes the water is, like, up to your tits. Deliverance. <laughs> You're like, I am in deliverance right now. So the the year that I went, I decided to wear jeans. And I don't really know why, because everybody knows if you're, like, a fucking sporty hiker type, you never want to wear cotton, right? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. You want to wear, like, breathable fabrics that are wicking, wicking, wicking fabrics. You got to be John Wicking at all times. Yeah, it's got to be John Wick shorts. Because at least the last thing you want to do is be wet, right? Because exactly. once you're wet, you're miserable. So I wore fucking jeans on this hike. And then guess what? The water was up to our stomachs. Oh, my God. And 
I couldn't take my pants off and cross the river. So I just crossed the river in my jeans and I was miserable the entire uh-uh. time. Mm-mm. Like chafing, fucking. It was the worst feeling. So I'm like. Humid. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Humidity, chafing. It affects the way that you walk. I mean, it was awful. So I'm like, why the fuck are you working out in jeans? Are you sweating in your jeans like that? That doesn't make any sense. Just put it some is... basketball shorts on. <laughs> work out in your fucking underwear. Like, with the shit that yes. we've seen in gyms lately, I would rather someone work out in their goddamn chonies than work out in yes. jeans. There's no, there's no performance-based reason to wear jeans in a workout. I just feel like it's somebody who's like, I gotta go right fucking out. I don't give a fuck. Like, I gotta just go directly to the barbell. Anyway, so that's how that's how I feel on that. And guess what? You got it right. <laughs> I agree. I cannot believe we're four for four. This is so much pressure. Okay, this is the last one. Now, you could get a fucking perfect score, or you could miss one finally, but we'll see. Okay? The very last question, serial killer or self-care. Eating two Costco hot dogs at different times but in the same day. Okay, so like you go to Costco at noon and then you go eat again, dog. eat a hot dog, go again at five o'clock and eat a hot dog? Correct. Self-care. Correct! Yeah! <laughs> you did it! Five, five. <laughs> <laughs> There is nothing wrong with going back to get a second Costco hot dog. Am you think I, right? I haven't done that at IKEA? Please. <laughs> one going in, one coming out. I'm having I'm going to the hot dogs first. Listen, I love Costco hot dogs so much. I feel like they're special. I feel like they they have the good ratio of bun to hot dog, which is yes. always an issue. And you get like a drink and a hot dog for like a dollar or something like that. See, I was just talking about this with my nephew who I blew his 26-year-old mind. I've never been to Costco. <gasps> never been to a Costco, but I have heard tales of the Costco. Do you have them up there, by the way? That, oh, that's the reason. Of course. They're all over the place. Oh, But, wow, I, but okay. I feel like since I'm just one person, I don't ever need like 24 rolls of paper towels. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need to get like Howard Hughes in here. Where I'm I, like, wish I, I wish I believed that. I wish <laughs> I could get on your level because... But that's the only reason I haven't gone is because I'm like I'm not like a bulk shopper. I'm more of the sure. like the daily market shopper. Absolutely. I I have a Costco membership. I listen, I my family has always been into like that bulk shopping game. And even though I am one person that lives alone, I have a card because I'm like, you know what? Who knows? Sometimes you need gas. Yep. Sometimes you need a really cheap chainsaw or some, <laughs> you know, you gotta get some some party supplies or whatever, like. Like, that's the craziest part about about a place like Costco is that it's not just, like, food and drink right. and beauty items, but they actually, like, you can get water delivered from them. They'll fucking do custom window treatments. They'll outfit Damn. your bathtub. They do services, right? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things that Costco does. But I will say that not all bulk places are the same. So, right. like... There are people I know who are like ride or die Sam's Club people. I'm mm-hmm. like, that's cool. I used to fuck with Sam's Club. Not anymore. I'm a Costco person through and through. My parents used to be a B they were in a BJ's. That's like another say, place. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then when they when the Costco got built in their town like six months ago, they were like, Goodbye, BJ. Hello, Costco. We're putting BJ's out of biz. 
putting yeah, PJs out yeah. of business. No, I agree. And people love Costco. They love their pants. They love their, like, people truly, truly love that store. Yeah. I think it depends on, like, what like what products you buy. Like, others, like, some places carry certain types of brands. And then there's, like, the house brand. Kirkland, mm-hmm. like, that is, Kirkland has its own cult. People love a Kirkland brand something. Which is, I think that the the Sam's Club is like president something, or I don't know what it oh, is, but president's choice. <laughs> president's choice. I've been to a lot of picnics in my day. I've seen those president's <laughs> choice boxes, and I'm like, who? Huh? Whose choice? What? I don't know. For some reason, I, I think I don't know why they're probably made by the same manufacturer. But I'm like, yo, I fuck with a Kirkland. <laughs> president's choice, gross. Well, it's like you're either Target or Walmart. Yeah. It's exactly. all mass market, but like I'm a target person. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, but I I'm do a target person. <laughs> oh yeah. This was actually harder than I thought to come up with, but I'm so thrilled that you got everything right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel prouder than I did when I got my master's degree. <laughs> if I could walk a stage right now, and, like, turn a tassel, I would be weeping. Listen, you did it. I'm so proud of you. Even though I felt like my questions were not as challenging as they yours. They were. A couple of them were hard. I just have hung out with you enough to know <laughs> that a flavored, the flavored coffee would have, would have confused a lesser friend. But I've yeah. hung out with you enough to know you ain't about that. Uh, I agree. I'm listen. I'm I'm so glad to call you my friend. You know me so well, and uh, I'm I'm hoping that I honored your game. You took it to another level. You honored it, and we. I just want to do this again and again. I am so psyched to get into this week and this <laughs> fucking theme that I came up with. Oh yeah, you named it. You came up with it. I'm so I'm so happy we're doing it. So tell them what it is. Our theme this week is Husk, and it's said to the tune of the Fleetwood Mac song Tusk, <laughs> and it's a theme about how kids drain the life out of you. <laughs> Why do we always love to do themes about kids, we, like killing people, ruining people's lives? We love a fucked up parent and a shitty little kid. <laughs> and mine, mine is a bit of a reach. I'll explain why I think it fits this theme. But I also, in doing our um, our double feature this week, was realizing that the last couple of weeks it probably feels like. Um, like your homework has been kind of like the finals exams of mm-hmm. the semester because all of a sudden we're assigning you these like three-hour movies. <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely right. right. End of the semester homework, <laughs> three-hour movies. But I I think I, I kind of, I'm interested in exploring this concept of parenting in film because I think depending on where the film comes from, we're, we're, it's kind of replicating the social norms of parenting so in America, it's very, you know, child-focused and, you know, kids can do no wrong and everything I do is for my kids. And it's, like, very hyper. <laughs> and I think that in other countries, it's less so, but or hyper in different ways. So I'm always interested in looking at how children um, and parenting in particular is viewed on screen. And I think it's because just from the from the corners of my feminist mind, I'm always 
always thinking about how parent becoming a parent is the number one way that women fall into poverty. Doesn't happen to men. Men become parents and they start getting pay raises and like, you know, people are like, oh, you have a family. We got to pay you still in 2023. Uh, But for women, it's not the case. For women, it's, you know, you're doing the bulk of the work at home and you're doing a lot of childcare and you're kind of replicating these traditional norms in a lot of ways. A lot of people are more progressive than that now, but for the most part, that's kind of the setup. And, um, you know, sometimes you get divorced and then it's like, oh, you're still parenting and you're going to work and you're (laughs) having to, you know, do the housework. It just seems like, and there are a lot of scholars that are much more eloquent than I am about this point, but it just seems like parenting is set up to denigrate women more than it is to uplift them. So I'm always Mm -hmm. interested in, in looking at those, those metrics. Absolutely. And honestly, like your film this week, it's one of these films. It's one of those like those uh, notorious films, I would Mm -hmm. say. Maybe notorious is too strong or pejorative of a word or something. But it is it's a film that's so unique. And I think that we've made jokes about it on the podcast because it is like I, I think it's got it's got the like notion of being one of these like artsy fartsy films if you know what i'm saying where it's like you know people who are you know when they complain about a movie being like Mm -hmm. three hours of one person doing one thing you know you're like oh there's actually movies that are like that and they are surprisingly entertaining and good sometimes exactly so you know? And I do talk about that. Like I was reading a lot about my director and my film, and and I yeah. think that her this my film in particular was kind of a, I think a, a, an intentional reaction to that process because those films yeah. usually star men, and it's like man stands around for an hour and a half and does nothing, like a ninety minute film where men stand around or, or you know they don't learn anything, they don't progress through life, like nothing happens, and we're all supposed yeah. to be like venerating these movies, where again a lot of them are very interesting. Uh, But this was kind of a direct, you know, thinking about movies that are in conversation with each other, I think this was the first on the scene of movies that kind of directly approached that thematic element, but in a very Mm -hmm. different way. Definitely. And like, I mean, we talked about Ingmar Bergman recently. I mean, it's like, he made a couple films where it's literally nobody doing anything (laughs) for a really long time. So, you know what? Like, This film, to me, you know, I've heard it called um, a feminist masterpiece. And, you know, and when you think about it in terms of that, too, it is, I mean, maybe this is something you will talk about, but I'm just sort of like, it is a feminist statement to put a woman on screen for that long, right? Like, and show her life in that way. And in terms of her kid, I mean, that is something I can't wait to talk to you about. Absolutely. And then my movie is the total, it's like a total 180 from your film. It is campy as shit. We're going to have a lot of fun with it, I'm sure. But your but film goes together, right to the jug of, like, husk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you suggested the theme, I was like, there can only be one. And there's probably like two or three, but this is the one, you know what I mean? And I do think, I do, I agree. I think it's a great double feature. Somehow it works. Somehow it works. (laughs) Our producer Casey said that there's like through lines between the films, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. So yeah, I'm excited. Well, we're going to get right the fuck into it because my film was released in 1975. 
The screenplay is by Chantal Ackerman, and it is directed by Chantal Ackerman. My film is Jean Dillemont, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. Tu lis comme ça tout le temps sans t'arrêter, tout à fait comme ton père. Oui, je sais, tu m'as déjà dit ça. And I'm going to give you the one sentence, and then we're going to go into the history of the film and the filmmaker a little bit, because it's important to me that we do that. So the one sentence synopsis of this film is, a single widowed mother goes through the quiet tedium of her life, punctuated by moments of sex work. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to pick this film is that it was one of the first films I watched when I started to explore the work of Chantal Ackerman. Um, And she's one of those directors where I do this every once in a while, and Millie, I know you do this too, where... I'll either hear of a director or realize I haven't seen a lot of their films and I just kind of start digging in and, you know, just kind of curious about it. So I was very curious about this film and I watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. And last December, so every 10 years, Sight and Sound magazine, which is the magazine for the British Film Institute, releases a list of the greatest films of all time. And it's usually like 250 films. And last year, Jean Dillemont was the number one greatest film of all time. And I am not kidding when I say every male film bro lost his fucking mind, including Paul Schrader. And these are people who would admit to like, (laughs) I like this movie, but what the fuck? Like men lost their fucking minds that this movie was was considered the greatest film of all time. And it's the first time that a woman took the top spot and it knocked out things like Vertigo and Citizen Kane and like all these kind of standard classics, which I think is very bold of sight and sound, but it kind of kicked up this conversation about wokeness and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, get over it. <laughs> like times change, yeah. the nominating committee changes, and people start to realize value in things that maybe have not always been universal. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll just, this is just me speaking, and this is just because of the people that I know. Anytime a sight and sound poll comes through on the internet, I'm like, bye. <laughs> like, <laughs> See you um, in taking a vacation. <laughs> I am get off the fucking social medias because I'm like, you know, anytime you rank anything as the best blank, people yes. lose their shit. But then I'm like, these film geeks that I know I gotta, I gotta stay off Twitter. Like I just, Absolutely. I can't deal with it uh, at all. So, and just watching people tie themselves in knots to explain why this isn't the best film of all time is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And I haven't read the internet from corner to corner, but I will just say, of the immediate twenty-five articles that I saw relating to this film being named the greatest film of all time. Every single one of them was written by a man. Every single one that was like, this is the worst film, I don't understand this, was written by a man. There could be women out there, I'm sure, who also feel the same way, but that's not what I saw. And I think this movie absolutely deserves it. And then it's the exact kind of film that, by being ranked and by being ranked in that spot, will bring more people to it. You know, this is a film that I think is very well known in filmmaking circles, like, you know, Chantal Ackerman absolutely influenced a ton of directors, like a whole new generation of filmmaking. But it's Mm -hmm. not really well known to the public at large. So I think that that's kind of the importance of those lists in general. Uh, When you're ranking something, you're kind of bringing bringing it to public consciousness. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. There's there's so much information out there, and I'll I'll try to kind of parse this down. But uh, (laughs) when I was reading about 
you know, doing research for the film this week, there's uh, an article in New Yorker magazine that came out in December of 2022 by Jessica Winter, and it's called The Revelatory Tedium of the New Greatest Film of All Time. And she writes a lot about how the film is shot and what it means and kind of how it how the film came to be and basically was really pleased that this film was was again like finding more footing in the public consciousness yeah so jessica winter the writer kind of starts out by saying that, that the film's strength derives in significant part from its austerity patience and extreme discipline each mm-hmm. each scene consists consists of a single fixed shot placed a bit lower than the norm. And the thing that cracks me up about this is Chantal Ackerman was five feet tall. So all of her <laughs> shots are set up to be like her viewpoint. You are literally getting her viewpoint. And there are scenes in the film where um the the you know the main character is in the kitchen and she's reaching for something on a shelf, and you can't see that shelf. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'm not tilting this candle. This is a fixed shot. <laughs> and yeah. we're gonna be looking at this lady's hips. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. And I fucking love it. So I think that the fact that the camera doesn't move and there's no reaction shots, there's no close-ups, like this article kind of goes into how, you know, Delphine Seyrig, the main actress, is on screen pretty much every minute. It's all about her. um, And it's all about this tedium. And Ackerman basically tributes this movie to her mother. And from the article, I will quote directly, Jean Dielman is Ackerman's tribute to her mother, to her countless hours of care, and beneath the surface, to the religious rituals of Ackerman's Polish-Jewish family, many of whose members were murdered in the Holocaust. Um, mm. So Chantal Ackerman's mother survived Auschwitz, and her mother's parents did not. Her grandparents were killed in um, Auschwitz. And to continue, in the observant Jewish home of Ackerman's paternal grandfather, every activity of the day was ritualized, a discipline that keeps anxiety at bay and brings a kind of peace, Ackerman told Criterion. Her mother, she suggested, sought out the same steadying rhythms in homemaking. So I think it's important to recognize that as we start discussing the film and getting into, like, what's the film about and what's going on, like, there's a very important through line of valuing women's work. And Chantal Ackerman saw that in her own life. And I kind of really love the idea of ritual being something that keeps anxiety at bay. Um, I've never really considered that in my own life until I read that in this article. Um, But a lot, yeah, well, because a lot of the time it's like, especially if I'm depressed or experiencing depression, the thing that lifts me out of it often is ritual. So it's like, all right, you've got to do the dishes. You have to do your laundry. You have to take a shower. You have to wash your hair. Like you have to do things to feel like a human being. And, you know, looking at the ritualistic work of the sanctuary of your home is something that's not really valued in our culture, in our culture. Like we kind of feel like, I think we kind of tend to think that our lives take care of themselves when in reality, there's an unseen amount of invisible work that goes into keeping the engine of your lives and your families going. That is a, a huge point in this film mm-hmm. that is not only like saying a lot about this character, but it's also like saying it's forcing you to kind of think of your own life and how you move around in your own home. Completely. You know? Completely. And yeah, truly, like the, the, the controlling of the chaos in your home to kind of make your home a sanctuary so that it's the one place where you don't have to overthink things. Yeah. 
which I think feels less OCD to me and maybe a little bit, but like for some people, but it feels less OCD to me and more like, you know, something I learned over time is that like, if I know where everything is, then that's 20 minutes I don't have to spend frantically looking for it when I'm on my way out the door. Like that kind of simple thing, that kind of simplicity, but also just like how, how it brings a lot of comfort. Like I like having my house be very orderly and clean and like, again, like it's not stressful. It's less stressful for me to keep my house the way that I want it to feel. The feeling of being home is more important to me than, you know, the out the outsized look at what it means to actually do that kind of cleaning. So, yeah. And also I think too, I mean, you know, like now that, um, you know, I'm unemployed and I have more time on my hands, like I, I, I do think that there are certain things about the rhythm of a day mm-hmm. that involve being at home and, you know, making sure that, you know, when you get up, you're going to do this and then you're going to clean this and you're going to do that, which I think in my days where I was busier and I was leaving the house a lot, those things would kind of fall by the wayside a little bit, you know, right. like I, like I used to like have a couple dishes in the dish in the, in the sink before I left and I wouldn't get to them until later. But now it's like, I'm cleaning every fucking dish the minute I use it exactly. and I'm putting it back in its place. Cause I have, the time, but I also, the rhythm of it is pleasing to me. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. only exacerbated when you have families and kids and schedules that are outside of yourself. But I completely yeah. agree. I completely agree. Yeah. And the other thing that just Winter says in this, this article that I really just loved is um, talking about the film. She says, it, it, and I quote, it sought to redefine everything that makes a film a film how it establishes tension and tempo, how it defines or disregards plot, uh, whom it chooses as a protagonist. One can watch Jean Delmont and wait for something to happen, but it already is. Mm. And that is something that I find, I will definitely deep dive into, but I absolutely think is fucking fascinating about this movie. And I also think it's fascinating about Chantal Ackerman. So she was only 25 years old when she made this film in 1975. Mm. She's very prolific. She made more than 40 films in her lifetime. Her first film uh, was Sauté Ma Vie. Uh, She made a movie called No Home Movie. Like, just look into, if you want to, or if you're curious about Chantal Ackerman at all, it's worth digging into. She, unfortunately, she she died by suicide in um, Paris at the age of 65 in 2015. And her New York obituary, I feel like the title of it explains a lot about her life as a director, uh, which is Chantelle Ackerman, whose films examined women's inner lives, dies at 65. And that's a really important distinction because I think that, you know, in in the course of this obituary, they talked to uh, Nicola Mazzanti, who's the director of the Royal Belgian Film Archive. Um, Chantelle Ackerman was born and raised in Belgium. And um, she said that John Delmont specifically is a film that created overnight a new way of making films, a new way of telling stories, a new way of telling time. There are filmmakers who are good, filmmakers who are great, filmmakers who are in film history. And then there are a few filmmakers who change film history. Mm -hmm. So the importance of her life and her work cannot be understated, particularly with this film, but in general. I, I strongly suggest that you go if you're at all inclined, go through uh, her litany of films and just start picking and choosing and getting really into the rhythm of what she wanted to say about women's inner lives and how important it is to have had a director like that, who I agree with <laughs> Nicola Mazzanti, who actually changed film history. Mm-hmm. 
So the film itself, and what I love about it, is that it's a movie where the feminism is rooted in a kind of forceful voyeurism. So it's like you you will learn every detail of this woman's day. If you're bored by it, then you have to consider why you're bored by it. If you're fascinated by it, then you have to – it's kind of ask you to do the work of understanding how you view this type of woman. Right. I love it. It's a little bit stressful at first because when we first meet her, it's, it's kind of a story told over the course of three days – and when we first meet her, she's <laughs> we're in the middle of day one uh, in the afternoon, and she's preparing dinner. So she kind of is getting dinner ready uh, to sit on the stove for a while. But she turns on the burners, and then she turns out the lights and leaves the kitchen. And I'm like, bitch, I'm stressed already. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I am stressed yeah. by a tiny Barbie stove just burning away with no one around to look at it and all these towels hanging and curtains and shit. Stressed. But it kind of puts you right into the middle of her life. And we're just watching a woman live her life. So on day one, again, like we're watching her preparing dinner and she puts it on to boil. Um, and then she accepts a client for sex work and she meets with a different man every day, one man. And it's kind of part of the tedium of her life. It's like her sex work is not exploitative at all. It's kind of, you know, she she's dressed like she's not wearing like lingerie and getting into like a like a best little whorehouse in Texas kind of mood. <laughs> like She's mm-hmm. like, I'm wearing my prim knee-length skirt and my button-down shirt and my little sweater, um, and I'll take off my house coat, and then I will go do sex work. Yeah, she puts that towel on the bed, which the seems t- very bleak. Oh, the towel <laughs> but- on the bed sends me every time. <laughs> and it's like a little, like a baby blanket towel. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Like a 70s towel. <laughs> Like, before they started making them big, like, big bath sheets, it's like a 70s small towel. And I'm like, wow. It can't even wrap it under an armpit. (laughs) 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 And we're watching her. And then after her appointment, she takes a bath. We watch the whole five-minute scene of her bathing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's knitting, she's listening to the radio, she's writing letters to her sister who lives in Canada. Like, all of this is happening in real time. It's like real time with Jean Delmon, except instead of yelling about boners and crypto, she's just like, I'm going to cook dinner. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. And one thing about Jean Delmon is that she will turn off the light every time she exits a room. She is not going to let you run up that electric bill. A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. That was like... You know, I, I it was funny that you mentioned that Chantal Ackerman, you know, sort of made this movie about her mother because it also reminded me of my grandmother. You know, my grandmother yep. was European, too. And they, there was like a lot of similarities, like even, you know, the house coat, like putting on mm-hmm. the like the thing over your clothes so that, you know, when you're cleaning or cooking, you don't splash it on your clothes. Like my grandmother did that. Exactly. And then also like turning off all the lights the minute like turn it on, turn it off. Like even the like cookware, the cookware seemed very, so it had that feeling for me. It felt very um, familiar for some reason. Completely. Yeah. Like the kind of worn in pots and pans and the, you know, the potato bucket, it's kind of stained because it's also the dish bucket. Like it's just the kind of the way that she uses the things in her home and cares for the things in her home are part of the routine of her home. And you're absolutely right. Like you could not leave a light on in my house. And that is a generational thing. Um, yeah. But I think you're right. It comes from this this history of of our families. And there is a lot that feels familiar, even though it's from even though it's taking place in Belgium, there's a lot that feels familiar to me too. 
Totally. And like part of it too, and I don't know if you felt that, is that like every time I watch this film, I'm like, okay, so she's got this like tiny little kitchen and they eat in that little kitchen. But then she's got that like formal dining area or whatever that like nobody is allowed to go in. Like, you know, that has the 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 jar that she puts the money in. Like that, yes. I don't know if that's a dining room, but it is a very formal room that no one is allowed to eat or drink in that has yes. a cabinet full of art expensive uh, ceramics that we polish, but it's not a room you're allowed to be in. You can only sit in this little kitchen and eat dinner. Or you can sit at one end of this table in this big room and eat (laughs) dinner. Like, one little end of this table is useful, and that's it. And again, (laughs) like, that's also part of the the way homes used to be designed is, like, there is a formal space, just in case, just in case, even if you're not a formal person, there's a formal space for you. Oh, I could I could go on about this forever. It's like a <laughs> kids don't use flat sheets anymore. They only buy the fitted ones. That oh. and like a formal living room. Like no, nobody would go in. That is unheard of. But for people our age, it was like that was our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. We grew up with that shit and now we're rebelling because I plan on using every fucking inch of my house. There is no formality in my yeah. home. Why would you have a room in your house that you don't ever use? I can't. Oh my God. But it is. It's like this, and watching her kind of just go through her life, and you know, this kitchen is so small that she keeps half of her kitchen like outside on a balcony. Like she's pulling pots and pans and potatoes from the balcony to cook, and yeah. like it's just this contained life. And she also has this son, Sylvain, which um, her sister Chantal Ackerman's sister in real life, her name is Sylvain, which I think is a nice little nod. Um, And he's a teenager and their dialogue is minimal, but you come to, as you're watching the film, you come to realize that most of her love is shown through the small actions um, and the absent dialogue. I mean, like, she cooks three-course meals on this fucking Barbie stove. But Sylvan is smart. Like, he's, he's memorizing Baudelaire and he's, you kind of realize that he sleeps on this pull-out couch in the living room. They go through the action of, like, moving the chairs and moving the table and kind of prepping his bed every night together. Mm-hmm. And in the first scene on that first day, they have this conversation about how she met his father. And you kind of realize that he doesn't know what she does for a living. Like through that conversation, you realize because he has very strong opinions about women and sex, even though he's a teenager who's never had any. But he also doesn't ask. He doesn't ask how she makes her money. He doesn't ask what she does for a living. He doesn't ask how she spends her time. And again, and and kind of the subtlety of this movie that I love is that Ackerman is really pointing out how Men are able to be ignorant in this way. They're allowed to yeah. sustain this, this, you know, and, and again, the, the traditional, more formal families, they're allowed to sustain this air of ignorance about how their own lives function. Like she wakes up every day and polishes his shoes and takes his shoes to get fixed so they, the rain doesn't get in. He's not questioning how she gets money for any of that. He's not questioning yeah. how much time she spends doing that. And the reason I wanted to pick this film for our theme of Husk, is because her whole life is built around her son. Every action in her day is built around her son and not just her home, but specifically her son. So taking a coat around town to look for a specific button and, again, the shoes and the food that she cooks and everything is built around her son. So it kind of kind of forces me to question that like there's a quiet and a solitude to this film but it's always done in the service of others so like you can't help but question as you're watching it like when does she have time for herself 
And shopping and groceries and running errands is is not time to yourself. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. time you're still dedicating to your family, to your home. And it just, I don't know, it just kind of forces me to look at and question how she spends her time in the service of others, even though she's completely alone and quiet most of the day. Um, yeah. So even when she sits down at night and has a moment to herself, she's knitting a sweater for him. Yeah. And, you know, we find out in a letter from her sister uh, that her husband's been dead for six years. So she's been doing this routine for at least that long. You know, again, waking up, heating the room, cooking his breakfast, polishing his shoes. And I got to I gotta say, in her morning routine, that coffee grinder is pure mom behavior. Where she's yeah. like, I don't care if it's five <laughs> o'clock in the morning and it's pitch black out. I'm grinding this coffee for a solid minute. And you're going to yeah. hear all these pots and pans clanging. But her morning, you know, as we move into day two, we realize, you know, we kind of pick up the other side of her day, which we didn't see in day one. And her moment is all about housekeeping and, you know, again, running these errands. And about halfway through the movie, which is also halfway through the second day, she finally has a cup of coffee by herself. And that simple act feels so fucking revolutionary by the time you see it. Yeah. Because it's the one of the only times you see her having a moment to herself. I mean, this is... This is a movie where at some point someone knocks on the door and just hands her a baby and she just rolls with it. <laughs> like a rogue baby is not going to stop Jean Delmont from dredging that veal. Yeah. And she just like, she's always in the service of others. Like even her neighbors can be like, I'm dropping my kid off so I can go go shopping. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, I think the, the brilliance of this movie in a, in a way is that, so it is just literally watching somebody do something that they do every single day and they have a rhythm and a routine so that you're so focused on studying those things that when something weird happens, you're like, holy fucking shit. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, like a baby just showed up. Like, (laughs) what is this going to be about? When you're just, you're like, well, in any other movie, you'd be like, all right, cool. But like, I think that it's such a contained experience that, and you're just so much looking at what's in the frame and you're waiting for something to happen, like like you had said, um, mm-hmm. quoting that article, that when there is like a kink in some way, it becomes so much more important and meaningful. Oh, you know? absolutely. And the, I completely agree. Like that is the brilliance of this film is that there is a point in the second day where the movie slowly starts to unravel. And the reason that you know anything is wrong, because it hasn't been shown on screen, but the reason that you know anything is wrong is that there's a button undone on her house coat, or her hair is out of place, or she's unable to make that cup of coffee that we watched her make so methodically the day before. And when her routine is utterly interrupted, you realize, first and foremost, that you know what her routine is because you've watched it in such detail. But then you can start to realize, fuck, there's something happening. There's something happening within her that we are able to translate through these actions or lack of actions. Mm-hmm. There's a point where she's walking around the house with, she kind of overboils the potatoes and she's walking around the house with the bucket like she doesn't know what to do with it. And oh my God. it's like devastating. And it's the simplest, weirdest action, but it's devastating when you watch it. Oh, yeah. I was shook seeing yeah. that again. Like I was like, why is she bringing the potatoes in the bathroom? What's going on here? Is it because she doesn't know where to put them? Right. And I'm like, 
no, she always knows where everything goes. This is so weird. What is this? Ha- it's like when she leaves the top off that fucking candy jar thing with the money. I was like, yeah. oh, she didn't put the, the lid back on the vase thing. Like what? She didn't turn now the light what? off. She didn't yeah. turn the light off when she left the room. It is, yeah. And it becomes almost like a, a, a an interior horror movie. 100%. As you're watching her fumble because she doesn't fumble. So I yeah. just, I love that. I think that is the brilliance of this movie that you're so in tune with the movements of her day that you instantly know something is wrong when things start to appear out of place. And yeah. Sylvan, again, like to kind of continue this notion, like Sylvan mentions that her, one of her buttons is un, undone, but he doesn't dig any deeper than that. And you feel like if you live with someone who's so regimented and then things start appearing out of place, would you not question that? It goes to speak to kind of the, not just the level of ignorance, but the level of, you know, the lack of caring that he's able to demonstrate. Because as long as he gets his dinner and his life is working out, he doesn't care. So it's truly brilliant. And I think that, you know, this is a woman, this is a movie about women. It's about how a woman values her life. It's about how she maintains, how she perseveres right up until the moment where she cannot. And the end of this movie is still shocking to me. Yeah. Even if I know what's coming, it's still shocking. And the last scene, I will I will not ruin it, but I will say that the last scene is like a seven or eight minute scene that is completely silent, completely focused on Jean Delmont. And it is just in its simplicity, it is purely brilliant. It's 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 comforting and scary and <laughs> like evocative. And it's literally just a shot of a character in a single frame looking. And yeah. that is all I will say about that. But it is it is just an absolutely wonderful film. I know it's three and a half hours long, but I strongly encourage you to watch it because it is a revolutionary film for several reasons. Yeah. I feel like you should w- watch it at least once. You know yes. what I mean? Like it is a, a movie experience unlike any other you will ever have. And, you know, for the theme, I mean, it's so interesting that you picked this movie for the theme because you're right. I mean, her life is based around her child. And in a way, his, it's almost like he doesn't even understand how much goes into, you know, the Mm -hmm. care of him. I feel like the only time he ever really asks anything of her is it's always like sex related. Yes. Or like, he's like, always like, oh, well, uh. So, you know, let's talk about sex, which is so weird, too, because it's like, and and again, this is a European film. I'm sure European kids have, like, zero problems asking their parents about sex. But in my household, I was like, uh uh-uh, never asking my parents anything about anything. Well, also, like, this dude has such an Oedipal complex that he discusses with his mother about how, like, I didn't want dad to fuck you, basically. Yeah. And it's just so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this this movie with minimal dialogue that that is part of the dialogue. Absolutely, and I mean, it's like, it's just interesting because it's like, okay, so you have that happening with your son, knowing that she's also participates in sex work to raise her son. So it's very layered Mm -hmm. and uh, very thought provoking. And honestly, I'm I'm, I have I haven't seen it in probably about five years, but I did I've seen it. I think three times. This is the third time I saw it. And as much as somebody who maybe doesn't, couldn't understand why anybody would watch this movie three times, I mean, honestly, every time I watch it, something else uh, happens. Like something occurs to me, you know? I completely agree. Yeah, I I love it. This is the same. I probably watched it like three times total. Yeah. Um, But it is 
And again, it's one of those movies where even if you know what's coming, you find something new in it with every viewing um, because yeah. you're you're paying attention to different things and you're kind of keyed into different emotional moments. So I, I love it. I think this film is a fucking masterpiece. I think it deserves to be the greatest film of all time for the next 10 years. And I think everyone who lost their fucking mind about it should watch it again and maybe get a hold of themselves and check in with their internalized misogyny. Yeah, suck it, haters. Maybe that should be a, a uh, maybe should that should be a serial killer of self care is yeah. complaining about Jean Deal men being the top movie on the sight and sound list. One hundred percent, and it's a serial killer move. Pew pew pew. Well, well, your movie is a fucking classic. Watch in my house. This is one of my oh, grandma's yeah. favorite fucking movies. So go for it. Yeah, it is. The vibe is the almost complete opposite of your ah! film. <laughs> Although it is long. Here, it's long here's what I'll and say. It's... Okay. I, I'm not going to like trash my movie necessarily. I wouldn't. Why would I? But also, like, there is something to be said about the idea that I can watch your film that's like over three hours long and be thrilled and then at the same time watch my movie and go, Damn, this shit is fucking long. Why? Why is this so long? And it's and it's shorter than your film. Oh so, god, I agree. We go. We'll t- we'll talk about it. But so my movie for the theme, Husk. <laughs> Don't say that you love me. <laughs> it is based on a novel by William March and a play by Maxwell Anderson. The screenplay is by John Lee Mahin. Directed by Mervyn Leroy, and it's called The Bad Seed. I don't care how small it was. Did you have anything to do with the way Claude got drowned? What makes you ask that, mother? Okay, so I'll just do a one-sentence synopsis right at the top. An eight-year-old girl is suspected of being a cold-blooded murderer. (laughs) That's it. I think that that sums it up pretty nicely. Absolutely. If you've somehow never heard of this film, this is a camp classic like let's just put it out there there i think it has it has persisted in the culture like there are so many references to it in film and tv uh since it came out i mean i've seen this play the actual play i've seen put on by drag queens like it is it is a absolute horror camp classic so I'll just get right into it. I mean, the movie is based around an eight-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl that has two braided pigtails, and her name is Rhoda Penmark. She's played by Patty McCormick, who, I have to say, has an amazing sense of humor about this film and yeah. um, will present it and stuff. I mean, she's a icon, so uh, she should be very proud of her work <laughs> in the bad scene. Oh, and she has um, everyone in a fucking headlock in this movie. Oh my God, she <laughs> fucking turns the thumb screws in a way we've never seen a kid. Like, you think Gage was, <laughs> ro- I mean, yo, w- without Rhoda, Gage would be a nobody. Let's get serious. Yep. So the the Penmarks, okay, are a family. They're like an upper middle class family. Her mother is named Christine, and her father is uh, Colonel Kenneth Penmark whom at the top of the film, you know, he he's in uniform and it's clear that he's like going to work somewhere, like maybe Washington, D.C. Don't really know like what exactly he does. But, you know, that's a very, I think, crucial uh, element to the film is that the father 
leaves the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I think, you know, sets up a lot of things for this film and maybe, you know, has a, has a little bit of something to do with kind of what I'll talk about later, which is that there's a lot of uh, women's pictureness to the bad scene. But r- right at the top of the film, okay, Rhoda is presented, uh, I use this term when I talk about myself, so I feel like I can call her this. She's kind of a fuddy-duddy type of girl. Like, she's very prim and proper, right? Like, she wears dresses instead of pants. Like, all the kids are wearing pants, and Rhoda's like, she just wants to wear her, like, you know, pageant dresses. You're the crinoline, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like I said, the pigtails, the the bangs. She has this sweet way of talking that almost seems overwrought. And at this point, enough time has passed to where it sounds disingenuous. Like, she kind of reminds me of, remember that skit, that Kids in the Hall skit where David Foley has the speech impediment that he's sarcastic? There's nothing I would rather do than just stand here and chat with you. You know, really get to know you. Yes! <laughs> That's what Rhoda sounds like in my... 2023, is that yeah, she she's, sounds... She's turning it on so hard around the adults that you're like, she has to be kidding. Yeah, she's got the sarcastic disease. But at the time, and in this film, in the context of the film, she was seen as very sweet. Like, just an old-fashioned gal, mm-hmm. you know? So, like I said, the father has to go work in D.C. He leaves. And at the beginning of the film, like, right before he leaves, Rhoda is just, like, obsessed with her dad. Like, she's just like, Daddy, I love you. And then she keeps talking and asking for a basket full of kisses. It's just so over-the-top and strange. Like <laughs> the only way to see it is be- being performed by drag queen. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like the beginning of that like Tom Petty song "Free Fall," and yeah. she's a good girl. <laughs> loves her, loves her father, loves Jesus, and a basket full of kisses. I don't know. It's like imagine that type of scenario. <laughs> so I mean. Rhoda's distraught that he's leaving, but the mom is too. And, you know, she loves her family, despite the fact that she is actually concerned that Rhoda might be too mature for her age. Like, she wants her kid to be a kid. And she's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't know what's going on with her, but I definitely understand, like, that maybe she's a little too caught up in this. And at the same time, we immediately get a sense of Rhoda's mean streak, okay? Because she starts talking about this award that they gave out in school recently, and it's called the Penmanship Award. And apparently it went to another kid in her classroom, a kid named Claude Daigle. What a name. And she is not fucking happy about this. She is like, it was mine to win. This guy stole it from me. Like, she is real emphatic about the fact that she should have won this penmanship award, okay? Mm-hmm. So you got that on the plate, all right? More about that later. Then we meet this character who is called Aunt Monica. Well, she's Monica Breedlove, but everybody calls her Aunt Monica. And she's essentially their landlady, right? She, like, lives in the building yeah. and uh, is obsessed with Rhoda. Think Ro- she thinks Rhoda is like the pinnacle of all childhood. Like she's just like, this is the most perfect little angel to have ever lived. But the thing that's interesting about Aunt Monica too is that she's obsessed with psychiatry and going to therapy and 
Sigmund Freud, basically, right? Completely. Uh, Aunt Monica's like a modern-day murderino. She's like, uh, here's how I spend my free time, psychiatry and murder. <laughs> yes. She is like, stay sexy, don't get murdered, Rhoda. <laughs> like, you know, the Aunt Monica character is definitely on one about psychiatry, and she's she's one of these folks that is all, she's like inserting the thing that she learned in therapy in every bit of conversation that she has. And so, you know, for all of that annoyingness, though, her character to me is really interesting because, like I said before, you know, as much as the bad scene has always been known as this kind of like campy horror, campy thriller film, to to me, I think it's a lot uh, in the 1950s kind of melodrama, you know, women's picture world too. And I think it's because in the 50s, there, 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 seem, there seems to have been a lot of films that were made that kind of centered families around, like, mental illness or addiction. I mean, I'm thinking stuff like Bigger Than Life, the Nicholas Ray movie, or, like, Autumn Leaves with Joan Crawford. And, like, weirdly enough, like, those these three movies came out in 1956, so I wonder if, like, 1956 was this big year for families in crisis yeah. or something due to some family member being a little off, quote-unquote, you know? So it's like... um, it's, a, it's just an interesting thing to think about, but I think that Aunt Monica character really, like, kind of brings that to the forefront, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, she wa- she brings it into this world where we're questioning, like, why is she like this? Why is this family handling things like this? You know, like, that right. kind of thing, right? So, in the next scene, <laughs> we are introduced to another character, and this character's name is Leroy, and it's... Like, to me, he's a very, like, stock Tennessee Williams-type character. Mm -hmm. Like, he's kind of seen uh, by all the other characters as this, like, dopey Southern maintenance man. But we actually find out very soon that he's a creep. (laughs) Like I said, it's a very Tennessee Williams stock character. I mean, this is kind of like Carl Malden in Baby Doll. Like, he's got that kind of vibe to him. And, you know... Monica, Christine, and Rhoda treat Leroy like garbage. Like oh, they all just, of them. All of them. They he is definitely like a piece of shit in their eyes. Monica's and basically actually, like he's he's a he's a fucking idiot, but somehow he has a family at one point. And yeah, I'm like, she actually damn, says bitch. that. Like we're like damn, hell, B. <laughs> <laughs> and also they make him sleep in the basement on a bed of this is a term that I had to actually look up. It might is this an old term, excelsior? Yeah, it's like a type of um, tree thing. It's like relates to a certain type of tree, like the, the oh yeah, I think because like yes, because I I was like I have no idea why they keep saying the word excelsior and he's sleeping on a bed of it. I was like, this is so strange. But anyway, so it's like some kind of like bedding wool tree yeah. thing or whatever, right? It's like dried Spanish moss, kind of. Yes. So this motherfucker is sleeping on that in the basement of this apartment building, right? Uh, That's how disrespected he is. But the thing about Leroy is that he is, like I said, he's a creep and he's also bad. He's a baddie. Like, and he's like, well, I'm bad. And the other thing is that he knows Rhoda. He he has her number, right? Because he sees her. He's the only character... Uh, that sees that she's, like, a mean little girl secretly. Like, for all of her pomp and circumstance, like, Rhoda is actually, like, a little brat. Yeah. He's like, same recognize same, because I am also a little bitch, and I see you are a little bitch. 
Yep, game recognizes game. Like Leroy's like, it's me and you, Rhoda. We're the bad kids. And by the way, your dad's in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to try to steal your mother away from him. Like, he's just... (laughs) He's all over the place. (laughs) He is all over the place. So cut to... There's this big picnic happening at Rhoda's school, and tragedy suddenly strikes when a kid in her class drowns in the lake during the picnic which the parents only find out about because it's on the radio. No one has called the house. No one has told that there's been a death in the school. They just hear about it on the radio, okay? So Christine is freaking the fuck out. They send all the kids home. And then Rhoda comes in the door and is simply like, what's going on? Like, Can I have a sandwich? They didn't feed us because we had to leave since that kid got murdered. <laughs> That yeah. kid got that kid drowned. <laughs> her her literal her literal only concern is yo I'm hungry. They didn't let us eat lunch because a kid died. So what you got? Right? And Christine is like, oh, <laughs> like are you okay, oh, no. my daughter? Because are you not traumatized by this? Like what is happening? So the, uh, Christine is already you know, kind of hip to the idea that her daughter is different. But then now she's like, wow. Okay, so my daughter doesn't even care that a kid in her class died. Okay. So, of course, Rhoda is like, well, I'm having a sandwich and I'm going outside to play. She goes outside to play and sees Leroy and he's like, yo, you should be sad. What's your deal? And she's like, fuck that. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So, this is taking a turn. (laughs) This says, taking a turn, okay? So, Rhoda's teacher invariably comes to the house, is like, guess what? Not only has there been a death in the classroom, but it was Claude Daigle, and his penmanship medal is now missing, okay? And the teacher informs her mom that Rhoda was pretty much the last person that saw him alive. (laughs) What cracks me up about this scene is, like, Christine gets every possible fucking explanation for how her child is an absolute psychopath. And she's like, but is she? But is she? For, like, another hour. And I'm like, bitch, they just told you straight up your kid probably murdered this kid for this fucking award. Yeah. I mean, for as long as I think this movie is and maybe shouldn't be, she has a lot of information about her daughter at a certain point, and I'm like, okay, it's still not clicking with you, huh? Like, you really, you don't want to make the phone call, maybe? Like, you get a lot of info. And, I mean, talk about drama. Okay, next person that comes through the door is Claude's mom and dad. Mm. Okay, now, this is when the camp gets kicked up a huge notch, okay? There are two, technically two separate scenes where Mrs. Daigle comes in the door completely trashed. And God bless this actress, Eileen Heckart, who plays Mrs. Hortense Daigle, because she is going for broke in these scenes. It's incredible. (laughs) Like, she's wasted. It comes in, trips over a step. And, you know, it 
obviously she's grieving the loss of her only child, but her performance of the drunkness is so over the top that I'm like, it's kind of hard to remember that you're actually grieving because you're just traipsing around a living room being like, and you, you think you're so fancy and you fucking people, like, what's your problem? Like, your dishes are too nice and your fucking bourbon is too nice. I mean, it's like, very... She's like, I will drink it, but this is too fancy. Like, I'll drink your fucking bourbon, but this is fancy shit, and I just want you to know I hate you. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just doing hair, and look at you, Laura, high on the horse. Fuck all y'all. My kid is dead. And I'm like, wow. Okay, lady. (laughs) But again uh it's it's a camp classic for a reason okay so here's i'm at a crossroads right now because there are certain things that i would like to communicate to you but then i would it would basically be giving away a lot of the movie and then part of me is like uh this movie has been out for 67 years is it okay to spoil it i think it's okay to spoil it because it's been parodied so fucking much Okay. Culturally. Okay. So, it's at this point that if you do not want the bad seeds spoiled for you in any way, then, you know, just turn off the episode. We'll see you next week. But in order to, like, I have to give some information to talk about the rest of the film. So, this is what I'm about to do. Okay. So, um, as it turns out, Rhoda has the fucking penmanship medal, dude. Right? Mm -hmm. And you're like... Okay, well then, what the fuck's up with this? And Christine finds it, and she's like, I don't know, maybe? And I'm like, bitch, again, how much information do you need? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, meanwhile, Rhoda and Leroy are having, like, a villain off. And it is so weird and hilarious. Like, he's like, guess what, little girl? You fucked up because you tried to wash blood off of a stick. And guess what? Blood doesn't come off sticks. And I got your number. And then she's like, oh, fuck, I'm bugging out. Like, this guy knows that I might have possibly murdered someone. So she's like, in her mind, the gears are turning. Okay, and this is an eight-year-old girl, by the way. I have to remind you guys that she is diabolically eight. Um, So at some point, Christine's dad comes to visit. So, like, Rhoda's grandpa. And um, it's like, you know... Her one of Christine's friends, this guy Reginald Tasker, is also there, and he's like a true crime writer. I would talk about Murderinos, but there's this super creepy exchange that he has with Rhoda as she's leaving and he's coming in, because Christine asks this guy Reginald, "So you like little girls to curtsy?" And he replies, "The best thing left after the Middle Ages." Oh, he's such a fucking creep. I was like, "Yo, is." That what a serial killer says? Absolutely. The best thing left after the Middle Ages is that little girl's curtsy. Mm. Oh my God. Wild. So anyway, he he's there with Christine's dad. Christine starts talking to them about how she's going to write her own murder mystery. And I'm like, oh, that's convenient. And like now that you have kind of uh, are putting the puzzle pieces together about your kid. And then... You know, Reginald leaves, and so it's Christine and her father. And the the whole conversation, this is a long portion of the film, which I'm kind of like, trim it up a little bit. Maybe it'll be a little bit more exciting. Mm -hmm. But she talks to her father, and she starts telling him, like, you know, I never really felt like I was 
really related to you. And I'm I, like, she keeps screaming, whose child am I? Whose child am I? And then the dad eventually just drops in. Okay, look, I have never told you this, but I'll tell you right now, now that you're a grown woman, you were adopted and your real mom was a serial killer. <laughs> Cas- casual, casual. Yes. So guess what? Now you have a direct familial lineage to a serial killer. So like Christine's like, oh, fuck, my real mom was a serial killer. My daughter might be a murderer. I don't know what's going on here, you know? I mean, like I said, the scene goes on for a long time and then the word specious is used twice. And I'm like, do people really use that word a lot? Not anymore. (laughs) They did back then. (laughs) Excelsior and specious. I'm like... Who the hell, like, they were saying a lot of fancy stuff back in 1956. So so now Christine is basically convinced that her daughter got the serial killer gene from her grandma, which is only confirmed when Rhoda is then busted trying to burn her fucking shoes. Because guess what? That's the murder weapon, folks. Like, <laughs> the way she, like, tiptoes like a fucking cartoon character is so funny. Yeah. So she's trying to burn the murder weapon. She killed a kid with her shoes, basically. And then when when asked why, she's like, he wouldn't give me the medal like I told him to. I'm like, damn. That's cold-blooded. Okay. Now, like I said, the rest of the film goes absolutely bonkers after this point because now she's an actual murderer. And then she starts killing some more. Like, now that Leroy has to be dealt with because he knows her secret you know basically she goes into the basement and sets his damn bed on fire while he's in it and then like locks the door so she's leveling up yeah it's leveling up shit gets real dark let's just say that i mean i feel bad just giving away the ending but the ending of this movie is literally a classic it's a classic what the fuck moment And I think that that's kind of like what the movie is actually known for is the ending. So again, if you don't want to hear this, shut off the episode. But the the end of this movie is essentially that Christine is like, my daughter has murdered several people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill her with sleeping pills and then shoot myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in the original play in the book... That happened, and Christine dies, and Rhoda lives, right? So evil is not punished. We we have heard the story many times. It's, you know, evil is never really punished. It's like the good, the good people die, and then the monsters live on, right? But in 1956, when we were still under the production code, the fucking production code was like, uh-uh, you are not allowed to show... Some murderer getting away with the murders. You have to punish this person. Even if it's an eight-year-old girl. So what does the movie do? The movie kills off Rhoda by striking her with lightning, basically. (laughs) She gets struck by lightning and dies. Incredible. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. She returns to the scene of the crime where she killed her classmate for the penmanship medal, and then she's out in the fucking dock, and then it gets struck by lightning and dies. And it is just so shocking. You're like, oh, shit, they killed a fucking kid. But then guess what happens immediately after? (laughs) End of the film. 
This is wilder than the fucking lightning strike. So not only did the production code say this person couldn't get punished, but then now the ending is too fucked up. So what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to do a cast of characters scene where everyone who was in the film walks through the set and is introduced. They're all alive and well, And it's the well, weirdest folks. ending to a movie. <laughs> it's so weird. And then when, uh, when Christine and Rhoda come out, like, you know, Nancy Kelly, the actress, like, spanks. Yeah. Rhoda, like, oh, you bad girl. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then there's a whole see- there's a whole slide that's like, P.S., don't spoil the movie, <laughs> basically. Yes. Like, we know this ending is fucked. Don't spoil it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did a screen grab of it. We'll have to post it on our social media. <laughs> it's just like, it is just so over the top. Like, in so many ways. And yeah, it's like, the the mom comes in and it's like, oh, you bad girl. And I'm like, oh, no. Did you actually know that you were shot in the head and lived and your daughter is dead? <laughs> ah, <that laughs> but I guess everything cool. works out. Oh, God, that was the funniest. And it's it, it, it is it's good that you mentioned it's because of the code, because it's if you didn't know that, you'd be like, what is actually happening here? Yeah, yeah. Normally, I probably wouldn't have given away the ending. But like, honestly, that. That fact is so fascinating to me that I felt like I had to in order to talk about it. So, Absolutely. yeah, th- this is the only movie that existed for me when you came up with this theme. I mean, this kid drains the life out of her mom. Oh, like, she essentially literally. drives her mom up a fucking wall before she meets her demise. Like she does, she, her mom realizing what her daughter is drives her up a fucking wall. Right. And it's all done when the dad's not around. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like the, the the crucial part of this for me and what makes it kind of in that melodrama tradition, which is that here's a woman by herself. She's got no man to like guide her in any way. And her daughter is out killing people, you know. And so that to me is what kind of kicks it up a notch. And I, I, honestly, like melodrama and horror are very, they're like kin to each other. Yeah. So this isn't, the first time that this happened and it definitely isn't the last time, but I feel like that's what makes it campy is that it's like very over the top. There's a lot of fantastical, crazy things happening and it's such an enjoyable film. Like I do think it's a tiny bit long. Like if this movie was 75 minutes, it would be a fucking barn burner. I mean like a little tight 75 minute thriller about a killer kid would be so great but you know what it's like it's over two hours and i'm kind of like okay but beyond that great choice for this theme and it fucking it's hilarious it's definitely campy it should be should not be missed if you haven't seen it already i love this double feature i love that it's like high and low art or something like i i I just love it and um well so listen if you want to email us about these movies or if you just want to chat we're at i saw what you did pod at gmail.com and you can find us on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter, or feel free to leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. You, if you don't know what to say, just say husk. <laughs> husk, five stars. Um, we also have merch. Please go purchase it at the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop. And our bonus episodes. New ones are coming out the third Thursday of every month now. And our old bonus episodes are trickling out on the main feed. Uh, They're no longer behind a paywall. So listen up. All right, Danielle. Next week's episode. I mean, you want to talk about a barn burner. Wow. This is incredible. This is the summer break after the final exams of the last two episodes that we've given. (laughs) Tell them what the movies are. 
Your movies for next week are The Crow from 1994 and The Exorcist from 1973. Wow. I can't believe we're making people watch The Bad Seed and then The Exorcist within a week of each other. (laughs) (laughs) That is wild. That's how we roll. (laughs) I can. Well, listen... Danielle, is always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Absolutely wonderful. I had so much fun. This was great. Yes. See you guys next week. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. And you can email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. Follow I saw what you did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I saw what you did merch.